And welcome back, everyone, to the Cold War cast. I am your host, Ryan Llewellyn. This is a podcast where we discuss the history and the pop culture of the Cold War. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that I heard about recently on the Jocko podcast. And Jocko is a guy that probably doesn't need a lot of introduction from my podcast. He is one of the most popular podcasters out there and probably one of the most iconic ones as well, too. And he had an episode about the book McNamara's Folly by Hamilton Gregory. And this was a book about uh, Project 100,000, which was a controversial plan by Defense Secretary McNamara during the Vietnam War to induct substandard men into the United States Armed Forces. And these were guys that normally the military wouldn't even look at. But due to manpower shortages and them getting kind of desperate for you know anyone who could fog a mirror, they brought these guys into the military. And the book and the podcast took the angle that this was done it's kind of an underhanded move to not rock the boat with more politically connected people. So during the Vietnam War and the draft, he makes the case that um, the author, Hamilton Gregory, makes a case that it was fairly easy to get out of the draft if you had a little bit of means. And what he means by this is that if you were smart enough to go to your family doctor and um you know preferably one that was you know somewhat sympathetic to um the anti-war movement they would be able to write you a note for any number of things that would disqualify you from military service and when you'd get to the induction center um and you know this was purely anecdotal when he said that but If you had a legitimate note from a doctor, usually they just kind of left it there, you know, just made sure it was legit and um, sent you about your way. But if you weren't savvy enough to do something like that, then, you know, you would just keep going down the line and potentially uh, get inducted to the armed forces. Um, He mentions um, getting braces, actually, was a popular thing to do at the time. So if you could afford you know, a thousand, uh, two thousand dollars, whatever it was at the time. And, you know, uh, of course, with a lot of young men wanting to get braces at the time, the price goes up. So, um, you know, take that as you will. But if you could afford to get braces, that would disqualify you for, um, induction into the armed forces. And I know the cost of college tuition has gone up a lot since then, but, if you were able to scrape together, I would assume just a, a few hundred dollars to enroll yourself full time into your local community college. Well, that would get you off the hook as well, too. And there were all kinds of other little things. Um, you know, of course, uh, being a father at the time, I, I believe a married father would get you out of the draft. Um, I know the conscience objector status is actually a lot harder to get than uh, people think. So you can't just go in there and say, hey, I don't agree with this. They'd be like, well, you know, who cares? 
but and that was the case back then as well too but there were these more um legitimate ways so long story short if you were from the middle class you had a pretty good chance of getting out of the draft if you wanted to and this book takes the angle that um yes that was unfair and that meant that the american government was going after men from less privileged backgrounds and a lot of times that's where they would find these substandard men um you know plucking people out of the ghetto or as charlie sheen's character in platoon say the uh, the end of the line you know guys from um you know backwater somewhere or whatever that were less likely to know how to raise a fuss um you know you know politically um if they were if they were drafted so the vietnam war didn't hit i guess you would say mainstream america as hard as it did um yeah the the lower classes of america and this book was pretty good um the author was actually a guy that signed up for the army during the vietnam war and he was college educated at the time so you know he was going to be in the um upper echelon of iqs in his uh training group but he was um he was a little on the uh portly side so he ended up getting sent to a special training platoon where a lot of these guys that were the uh McNamara's morons as they would call them um the guys that weren't capable of functioning within the um, army basic training where they would go to get uh, I guess you would say additional motivation in order to complete training and get sent down the line. So uh, he was, he's got an interesting um, interesting take as a intelligent guy being with the not so intelligent people just basically because of his physical limitations. But anyway, um yeah, the book was good. But the thing that really got the gears turning for me was during Jocko's podcast and also in the book there was absolutely no mention of the Cold War and why the United States would really be in a position where we would have to do something like this to um bolster up manpower to you know as they would say in the military get every swing and dick we could get and this is an issue that it definitely ties into the Cold War, but it's even still relevant today and in recent history as well, too. And in a way, kind of in my personal life, I'm dealing with a little bit of this as well, too. And um, I'll probably touch on that at the end. But there's just a lot of things that can be said about this topic that um, are really relevant today. And this is probably going to be an episode where I end up all over the place. Just to, just to forewarn you, um, I don't really have much of an outline going. I'm just uh, just shooting from the hip, as they say. All right, so the United States military is very big, of course. And during the Cold War and today, we have a lot of obligations around the world. And of course, during the Cold War, we had two very, very big ones. The first one was our commitment to Europe. So that's why, you know, we had 
just huge numbers of troops stationed in Germany and a few other places in Western Europe as well, too. Air bases in the United Kingdom, Italy, um, just scattered all over. And then off in the Pacific, we had or, you know, still have a big obligation to South Korea, just in case the Chinese and or the North Koreans come for them. We asked some guys there to make them think twice about it. And we also had a big obligation to Japan. So currently we've got um, Okinawa, where we have a lot of troops stationed. And during the Cold War, there were more on mainland Japan as well, I, I believe, too. And this was to keep... Japan within our orbit and in a way kind of protect them from the Soviets and or the Chinese and also to have those guys on hand just in case something did happen in the Pacific. Um, You know, we kind of sort of have obligations to Taiwan as well, too. So we've got to have our guys there. So I, I know people have heard before the idea of the United States military being structured for a two-front war or a um, two-war doctrine, I, I believe is what they call it. And these are those two wars that we're talking about. It's not just any two wars around the world. It was specifically these two things. So in case the Soviets attack and um, you know head west in Europe, we've got a plan there. And Also, at the same time, if, and this would be the nightmare scenario, of course, if the Chinese started, um, you know, attacking South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, whatever, we would have something there to deal with that threat as well, too. So when the Vietnam War started and the American involvement in that really got ramped up, that put us into quite the pickle because that was like having the the everything in place for the two potential wars and then about half a war maybe three quarters of a war because that was a pretty big affair once it was all said and done so it wouldn't have necessarily been a good idea for us to take existing units from germany and send them to vietnam or you know maybe not even necessarily the ones from okinawa um, the other parts of japan or, or whatever because they were slated for these other problems. So they had to take units um, stateside, basically, and have them be the ones to go to Vietnam. Now, one subject that comes up a lot in this book is the idea that during the Vietnam War, the National Guard and reserves were barely touched in order to fight the Vietnam War. And the case is made that the reserves and National Guard, the positions within there, were mainly political. So kids from well-connected families were able to do their military service honorably, but avoid the heavy lifting of Vietnam. Um, One example, for instance, and, you know, just take this for what you will, I believe it was the Mississippi or Alabama National Guard out of the, you know, 12,000 or, you know, I'm just making up the numbers of um, slots that they had, they were filled 
um, you know, almost 100% with white people at the time. And, you know, obviously the population of, you know, either one of those states is not 100% white. So it's kind of implying that it was a good old boys network to, um, you know, keep keep people out. And I know during George W. Bush's presidency, that was brought up a lot that, you know, he was uh, a fortunate son. And his time during Vietnam, he was a pilot in the Texas um, Air Guard, I believe. And, you know, of course, there's the story about how he never showed up or anything like that. But um, we'll just kind of leave that there. And really, that was the case with a lot of contemporary politicians that grew up during the Vietnam War, that they came from some means and the war was unpopular. And in mainstream American society, a lot of people were trying to get out of the war and didn't want to get in the war. So maybe if you go back to the time, it seems like something that like, yeah, everyone is, everyone's doing this. So prominent politicians, uh, you know, whether or not you like them and, you know, I'm not casting judgment right now, but, you know, Mitt Romney, uh, Bill Clinton, Donald Trump and, and the Bone Spurs, you know, these were guys that came from means and got out of the Vietnam War. But I think going into the 1980s, so once these guys really started hitting their stride, um, you know, politically, economically, society changed a little bit and getting out of the Vietnam War um, you know, we became more of a militaristic society into the 80s and going into the 90s with the Gulf War, then the war on terrorism and so forth. So it, the tables kind of turned on these guys a little bit, but I think I'm kind of jumping the shark right here. Anyway, back to the reserves and the National Guard. So um, like I was saying, the author of the book was saying that it was political, and these guys should have been the ones used for Vietnam, but um, you know they weren't in order to um, you know keep these guys out of harm's way. But the thing is, the reserves and National Guard in the United States were already slated to these much bigger potential Cold War conflicts. So if war broke out between the Soviet Union and the West in Europe. Um, George W. Bush and his friends would not be sitting in Texas. They would be getting mobilized and getting their asses sent over there. So uh, they were already spoken for by that. And if something did kick off and time would be of the essence in order to fill the gaps of the massive casualties that the West would have taken in the first couple of weeks or so, I think some of the plans I've seen would say that within about a you know thirty days they would expect the first national guard units to to come into the European theater and in case in the event of war and in the Pacific, that was the same thing as well too, where if something happened in Korea, it would be expected that there would be um certain army reserve marine reserve national guard units that would be slated to come in to, to fill the gaps basically over there as well too so these guys were spoken for um the threat that they were facing of course was a little bit more abstract at the time but 
they there was a plan for these guys. And I, I think that's something that a lot of people just really overlook is the fact that all the United States military is all over the world, but they're not doing nothing. What they're doing is their their presence is what matters a lot of the time. So, for instance, I remember a situation about two years ago once COVID um, first became a thing. There was an American aircraft carrier in the South China Sea, and the um, the captain of the ship sent out some sort of communication that was not secure that said a large portion of the crew had come down with COVID and was um, out of commission for a while. So the ship wasn't at full capacity. And it turned into a big thing, you know, mostly on social media, where, um, you know, some percentage of the population was saying, you know, this captain's an idiot. He shouldn't have said anything like that. And then probably a larger uh, percentage of the population was saying, this guy's a hero for, um, you know, getting it out there that his people need help and that things are wrong and, um, you know, he's not trying to cover up COVID or whatever. Well, what was really happening there is that aircraft carrier's job is to to be there, to have a presence there, that the Chinese know that there is an American aircraft carrier with all the capabilities that that implies ready and right there in the South China Sea. Now, if this captain, if he goes out and says that, yeah, we're here, but kind of not really because, you know, however many of us are, are sick and, um, you know, we're not firing in all cylinders right now, that is something that the Chinese or, you know, who, whoever in the Pacific could theoretically take into considerations and be, okay, like, okay, yeah, we were eyeballing Taiwan. Now we know that the scales are slightly tipped in our favor and we can attack now because we're not going to get, um, you know, the, the full bore of this aircraft carrier and all the power that it has there. So, so during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, where we had to take military units from all over, I remember hearing that uh, when I was a Marine reservist, that we were kind of upgraded on the list where if something kicked off in Korea, we would be one of the first ones sent in. And I also remember hearing that at some point we were going to be sent to Okinawa. So a unit that was already there in Okinawa could be sent to Iraq. So, you know, why couldn't they just send the unit from Okinawa and, um, you know, lock the doors on the barracks? Well, because they needed um, they needed that presence there, and that's what we would have provided. But, you know, ultimately they end up sending us to Iraq, and um, I think they finally did get to some of the guys in Okinawa. But, um, you know, that's neither here nor there. And I think the book just really missed the mark on the idea that readiness and presence were two of the main objectives of the United States military back then during the Vietnam War and 
definitely today too. So, you know, when these subjects come up, just, uh, you know, keep that in mind. So who knows uh, what military subjects might be coming up the pike with everything going on in Ukraine right now, man. And something a little bit more contemporary um, during the the big surge in um, Iraq and Afghanistan, I believe, in 2008, 2009, around that era, the American military was really hurting for bodies um, as well, too, because we did still have obligations around the world, and we were fighting a pretty big war in both of these places and a few other little places here and there. So similar to what they did during Project 100,000, they really reduced uh, recruiting standards. So you can now have, um, or at least at the time, I know they let guys with uh, tattoo sleeves in, which normally wouldn't have been the case. Um, Guys that were a little older than usual, um... I think they reduced some of the testing standards and also let some people in with uh, criminal backgrounds. I I mean, obviously ones that weren't terribly serious, but things that during better times could have um, gotten you disqualified. I know they were also giving out very big bonuses as well, too, and even reducing the amount of time on the contract that um that you can get like i think they were letting people do two three-year contracts instead of the uh, traditional four or six and of course they were relying more on reserve national guard forces at the time you know just because admittedly there was less of a threat of the the chinese or the russians at the time you know coming into europe it wasn't quite the same as the cold war and um, they had a, a, a lot more of a free hand with uh, reserve guard forces. <laughs> I actually remember hearing a lot of people talking about um, the idea that they would bring back the draft for that. And, uh, you know, fortunately, they, they never got to that. But now today, they don't really need as many people in the military as they did, well, during during the Vietnam War and, um, you know, the height of the uh, war in Afghanistan. So recruiting standards are actually fairly high right now, and they are less likely to give bonuses um, and, you know, various promises of sort. Um, my stepson is 17 years old and a junior in high school. And he is looking at joining the army right now. So we've kind of been dealing with that. And um, I don't think he's, you know, they've talked about him trying to get bonuses and stuff like that. I don't, I don't think they're really going to give him anything. I think uh, maybe just the job he wants and and that's that and that's fine. Um, also, one thing that's really got me thinking about this book, like I said, I'm I'm all over the place today. But the kid's grandfather... Um, my ex-wife's husband's parents they are um they're they're very great people they are very well to do and they come from this era of the Vietnam war where he you know I'm not saying he's a draft dodger or whatever but you know he would have been a guy I believe based on his age that would have gotten out of the Vietnam war because of a, a college deferment 
And there is some strain, I think, really in that side of the family between the steps, my stepson saying that he wants to join the military and his grandparents who definitely do not want him to. And they keep telling him he should go to college instead and, you know, this and that or whatever. And I think some of this does come from, um, I guess, kind of the, the boomer 1968 era thinking that the military is kind of a, um, you know, for, for dead end people and um, not really a, uh, a a good place for people from good families or, or whatever. I, I think some of that is actually going on, some a little bit of a holdover from the Vietnam era. But anyway, this this book by Hamilton Gregory, McNamara's Folly, I thought was really good. And um, just to throw out a few anecdotes of the kind of people that we're talking about in the military, um, there's a guy that he is assigned to uh, right when he reaches a processing station. That um, And he's from Nashville, I believe, but it's a kid from somewhere up in the hills of Kentucky or Tennessee, actually. But he doesn't even know that he's from Tennessee. He, um, you know, just never been a thing. He's never left his town. He just knows that he lives with his granny. Um, he doesn't know his address. He doesn't know how to tie shoes. Uh, he didn't know how to just do a lot, a lot of different things. He just had no real sense of the world. And he is a guy that would have scored just absolutely abysmal on the intelligence test. Um, physically, uh, you know, he was very malnourished and, and weak. And uh, there's just absolutely nothing this guy can do but be counted for the military. So he talks about all the trials and tribulations he has as kind of this guy's mentor throughout boot camp. Um, a lot of the military jargon, he wasn't able to to get you know he barely could speak with somebody with an average IQ you know he just couldn't uh, do that then you throw in all these um, you know all the slang and so forth it was very hard for him to emotionally handle uh, the the situation of, of being in the army and this was the case with a lot of these guys they say that of the casualties in Vietnam, where there was close to 60,000, there was 5,800-some-odd of these guys that were, you know, McNamara's morons, the um, the low-IQ people, the people who scored very low on the ASVAB that were killed. And they were killed at a much higher rate than, um, you know, the, the regular people, I guess, that went through. My favorite story in the book was one about a guy that was uh, literally a dwarf. He was you know, four foot eight or something like that and came into the the medical center one day and they asked him what his problem was and he kicked his boots off his feet just very easily. He's like, well, you know, this is my problem. There's, I don't have boots that fit. So, you know, my feet hurt. Um, I can't do anything. Uh, they they promised me they would get me my right shoe size, which, you know, let's just say it was like four or something. But the lowest that the Army quartermaster goes is six. And all, his, all the uniforms they can get him, the smallest ones, were completely baggy on this guy. And a, a doctor at this um, 
medical station was like, how, how the hell did you even get here? Like, how did you actually get pushed through the system? And, you know, he was way below height standards and they just needed anybody with a pulse that wouldn't put up too much of a fight. So they sent this guy. So anyway, what they did with this dwarf is they were going to process him out and send him home from Vietnam. But they couldn't just do that. They would have to medevac him. So, and in order to medevac him, he can't just walk on a helicopter. He has to get off on a stretcher. So they put this guy on a stretcher and they had to put a toe tag on him while he's, you know, more or less perfectly fine and say that the reason why they are processing or medevacing him was because of dwarfism. So he gets to another station, you know, he just hops right off the stretcher once he gets there and they determined that there is nothing they can do about his dwarfism at another station. So they sent him to another hospital, then another one. Ultimately, he gets to a main hospital in Japan. And they determined that, yes, he does have dwarfism. And this was discovered while he was in the, while he was in the military. So it becomes a service-related disability. So this guy's been a dwarf all of his life. But because he got inducted to the American military... And then ultimately discharged for dwarfism, he collects a disability check uh, for his dwarfism and obviously discharged and went about his business. So I, I thought that was kind of a funny story. But obviously, um, Project 100,000 wasn't very funny because it really preyed on the the weakest of society insofar as their their political clout their um their their standing within society and it really it sent these people who were not capable of dealing with the horrors of war in the same sense that uh, you know a person with the average understanding of the world would would be able to um uh, to to deal with the hardships of war um think about your time event horizon um delayed gratification so in normal situations, you could tell a person, hey, you know, we can't fall asleep, to go back to Platoon, the movie, can't fall asleep in an ambush because if we do, um, you know, we could miss it completely or get caught ourselves or whatever. But when you tell somebody with an IQ of 75 that, they might not be able to really fully comprehend that and be like, okay, well, I'm, I'm tired, so I'm going to sleep, you know, as, as, as just one example. So, there were all kinds of stories of these guys that just kept getting sent down the line, um, you know, processed and then boot camp, then off to this training, that training, and then to the field that were causing accidents with, um, with, with troops and probably doing more harm than good in all of this. So uh, this really was a, uh, a black eye on the United States, I think. But I'm going to end the podcast here. I think I've just kind of rambled on for a while. Um, this is the first one of the new year and not what I planned on doing. The next episode I'll do will be about the Turkish um, soldiers in Korea. That's what I originally planned on and we will roll ahead with that. Um, if you want to get in touch with me right now, the best way to do it, just get on Instagram and look up Cold War Cast and you can find me there. This show's sponsor is Red Dragon Herbs and Teas, which is my business and my wife's business. 
You can uh, check us out at reddragonherbs.net. We have loose leaf tea. Um, Valentine's Day is coming up pretty quick, and our tea actually makes a pretty good gift. And another way you can support us is go to Red Dragon Herbs on uh, Instagram and follow us there too. My wife is very active with that. So that's all I've got for now. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you later.